What does a leading regulatory specialist, public and investor relations expert, and compliance executive have to do with cannabis and psychedelics? Stay tuned and you'll find out. Five, four, three, two, one. This is the Good Dudes Grow 2.0. On the Good Dudes Grow 2.0, we're here to let you know the importance of plant-based medicine and psychedelics on mental and physical health. We're bringing you stories of how these medicines have changed lives and can save lives. We want to teach you the healing power of plant-based medicine. This is the Good Dudes Grow 2.0. What's up, Good Dudes Grow? Welcome back to an amazing show. My next guest has an extensive experience in the regulatory communications in sports, gaming, politics, government digital health technology, as well as the cannabis and psychedelic industry. I would like to welcome my next guest, Michael Kidd, founder and principal of the Kidder Group, to the show. Michael, welcome to the show. Sure. Uh, listen, Gary, thanks very much for having me, and, um, and hello to all of your, your listeners and, and your followers. Thank you for coming to the show. Can you just give us a little bit of uh, background and how you started the, the Kidder Group? So, um, so, so look, I've, um, I've had a... Uh, probably two and a half, three year journey in the realm of psychedelics, just based on my own personal uh, interest. Uh, it was probably, I've always had a, a consulting role um, after my work in politics and government. And I got more into the private sector and wanted to do more work with different clients in different industries. So mostly biotech, life sciences, a little bit of mining here and there, AI, but what interested me the most about um, about psychedelics, and as I mentioned, it is a very personal journey for me. Uh, I lost both of my parents when I was young um, to to cancer, and you know, for me, um, once COVID hit, I recall sitting back thinking, "Where you know, where am I? What am I doing? Where's my life going? We're in the middle of a pandemic. We were all scared." And, um, and I started reading about about mushrooms and the impact that they had. And and to be honest with you, I had only tried mushrooms once when I was 19, but I was as anti-drug as you could imagine. Um, and growing up and all the way up until, you know, my, my, my mid forties, I'm 48 now. But, um, so I, I started to reach out and, and, and try to identify some of the existing problems that were within the industry and what was really taking place. What was the message being put out there with, uh, with governments on the regulatory side, on the policy side. And, one of the things I came to realize is that there were a lot of companies uh, in the public space and in the private space uh, who were talking a lot and trying to talk over each other. So you had Compass, you had Atai, some of the big early adopters like uh, MindMed, and they were all talking and all trying to showcase what they had best for the industry and what they felt was best for everybody in the industry. And it, it dawned on me that, you know, we, we, there, the industry was, uh, not really suffering from a science problem, but it was suffering from a communication problem. And what I ended up doing was putting a firm together. And um, as I mentioned, I've done some consulting in the past. And 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 we started to identify some of those problems on the political side uh, of the equation. And especially up here in Canada, when we had um, the Section 56 um, I didn't call it a fiasco, but it was a, it was a good start to the psychedelics industry in Canada. Uh, but then we came to realize that, you know, this was a Pandora's box in 2020 um, when Health Canada had uh, allowed the four patients to access the, um, the Section 56 exemption process. 
uh, from the Minister of Health. And what it ended up doing was just opening Pandora's box and allowing uh, a, a, a lot of um, organizations to somewhat take advantage of the system and, and put, try to push patients, patients through the Section 56 process without actually achieving some of the safety and uh, efficacy data on psilocybin. So I got involved. I started to take on a few clients here and there and and doing a lot of government relations and some lobbying work with the federal government. And it really just um, kind of transformed into this uh, really neat space that I'm in now with my group and taking on different roles because I have um, a really good staff and good people behind me that are uh, very well versed in um, everything from digital communications and marketing right through to senior government lobbying. So we're taking on um, a a variety of different clients that are focused on end-of-life palliative care, terminal illnesses, and right through to how to obtain a dealer's license so that they can actually uh, produce uh, the drugs that are going to be needed eventually in the psychedelic space down the road. That's interesting. So you started out, like, like you said before, totally, you know, not into drugs, not into psychedelics, not into anything. And then you saw a problem and you kind of not only investigated the compounds, but you investigated what the problems were and you created basically a solving problem company. It's like, am I, am I correct? Basically you, you saw something that you needed yeah. to be fixed. And you're like, you know what, this, this, I'm one of those guys that, you know, I, I'm not into drugs either. I was never into drugs. I, I saw a problem with what's going on, and hence the reason why I'm building a facility out in Costa Rica. It sounds like you went down the same road. Somebody who's not into drugs, but yet you saw something that could benefit a lot of other people, but there was a lot of weird stuff going on, and you wanted to actually fix that train and make it go in one direction. Is that correct? Hey, absolutely. And I think anybody who gets into business, the number one rule and or the golden rule is, you know, you make sure you have a problem to solve. And, you know, psychedelics being a national, um, really up and coming industry, um, which, and, and it's still trying to define itself to, to this very second as we're talking, um, ha- still has a lot of problems around traditional usages, indigenous usages of the medicine. Um, what's, what's going to be more profitable, a retreat model versus a cultivation formulation um, building model, uh, right through to compounded molecular development. So these are a lot of big questions and a lot of people have um, certainly some are adding some, some incredible value to the conversation. Um, but we're also at a point where, you know, I think, I think people are becoming frustrated with this whole, this whole discussion around, okay, these, these, these medicines, these species of mushrooms have been around for thousands of years and been used in traditional ceremonial circles and, and for healing purposes. And, you know, I think people are at that point where if I can walk into a forest I'm looking at one right now out my window. If I could walk into a forest and consume a, a mushroom that is produced by nature, um, why, why can the government tell me what I can and can't do to help with my own therapeutic um, journey? And that is a question that I think governments across the country, or, or, or provincial and, and federal, but also across the world are struggling with because how do, how do I actually regulate a natural product is the big problem in the industry. And I know that's happening with Health Canada. They're asking themselves that question every day. And you know what, I think my role in the space isn't to go and discover new compounds and new species of mushrooms to help people. What it is is to really try and unclutter some of that policy and some of that regulation and communicate it in an effective way where people who need access to to those uh, drugs and medicine uh, actually do get a chance to have them. 
Right. Where where do you see the clutter right now? What's going on? Because I, if you look around the news and you read a, a lot of stuff, there's people always coming out with new compounds. Now you got the people coming out with new facilities to actually use these compounds, but you can't get the compounds to use them in, in their regulatory issues. Where do you see the bottleneck? Because from what I read, I see one trying to go forward and then the other one slows down and then it tries to go forward. They never kind of meet uh, on the same level. No, and, and you know, there's... <laughs> It's, it's a really good question. And, you know, the first thing I will I, I, I will say is in the last five weeks, last six weeks, um, you've seen federal and provincial and state level authorities um, actually raiding um, online and street front dispensaries. And there's a reason for that. And the reason is that commercial investors and commercial um, entities who want to get into the magic mushroom business or even just right, the, the psychedelic business um, are getting way ahead of themselves and trying to push the legislation through illegal activities. And look, I don't um, I don't condone anybody who wants to try and access um, uh, drugs for, you know, specific psychedelics, I shouldn't say just drugs, but psychedelics. Cannabis is obviously legal here recreationally and medicinally in Canada. But I don't condone anybody for doing that, especially when they're looking at governments who won't allow them, quote unquote, the right to try, whether they're in a terminal state or a, a complex uh, mental health, suicidal ideation state as well. There's there's a whole fine line there. And that is a significant problem because I think people in the industry and the sector are trying to solve those problems. You have alcohol addiction, opioid addictions, you have smoking cessation, all these different combinations and these studies and clinical trials that are trying to find the right pathway through. And, you know, we can get lost in the shuffle. Companies are getting lost in the shuffle. And you throw on top of that the fact that the market has essentially tanked. There's not much investment coming in, um, as we saw in 2019 and 20. And that's forcing companies now to really scale back operations and scale back, um, you know, some of the people who are actually discovering these molecules. So it's, it's a difficult, difficult industry. Um, it's working its way through, and I'm certainly hoping that 2023 will will see will see a, you know more light at the end of the tunnel in terms of um, getting some of these products to market. I, I think that the, the slowdown and everything that's happening right now, I think it, in my opinion, it's actually good, just because it's slowing a lot of the the, the higher hype, the over anxious uh, companies trying to push something out there faster than it needs to be. Because we've heard of all these studies that there's. You know, there was all these great studies before, but now all the, how do you say, the, the side effects or the, 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 the weird things that are happening in those studies, they're slowly coming out. You know, we want to take these medications, take these compounds. We want to see the good and the bad. We, we want to investigate how to use them safely and what happens when they don't go on safely. We want to have, we want to care people who have mental conditions, but we, we need to actually understand those conditions and not say, MDMA, psilocybin, or, or DMT will be the cure of those conditions. And, and I think a lot of the hype that's been going on for all 2022, and a lot of it's done from, from investor standpoint of, of just flushing money into it, trying to get it out to the point so they can get a return on it, is actually made it a little complicated for those just looking who want to get help. A lot of people are yep. going, hey, I have this problem. You know what? Psilocybin's the key to it. But is it? You know, there's 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 steps to figure out. You may not even need to go to 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 a facility or or, or to a retreat or to a, a ketamine clinic, but it has started opening those conversations with people who do need help. So I, I think personally, it was a good idea 
to actually slow everything down and try and catch everybody up to prove that, you know what, let's take a step back. Let's figure out how these medications work. Let's find the easiest way, the most effective, most uh, uh, efficient way to actually get them, the, a better way of actually delivering them. And this way we can actually control the bad outcomes from, from the good outcomes and get people with what they want. It, what do you think about that? I think you're absolutely right. And, you know, I, I do give credit to Health Canada and the, and the federal government here uh, up in Canada. Um, that's exactly what they did at the beginning of this year uh, when they brought in the special access program. Um, they, they choked off the Section 56. And for those who are listening, um, I'll just quickly give you a quick um rundown of it. The Section 56-1 process uh, under the Controlled Drugs and Substances Act uh, would give the Minister of Health the authority to grant an exemption to a patient who wanted to access psilocybin-assisted psychotherapy. The patient would access the product from the black market and then go to a treatment facility and be treated. Uh, the government was granting very few of those exemptions. Um, when, as I mentioned earlier, kind of the genie genie got out of the bottle, Pandora's box, whatever you know analogy you want to use here, um, it, we saw we saw the market, and we saw a lot of um, a lot of people rush to get these exemptions through so that they could access these therapies. And what the federal government did was, I think I think it was correct at the time, was they said, "Hold on a second here. We are now going to streamline this for special access only, meaning you have to have be, you have to be suffering from a serious or life threatening illness in order to be able to access." It's no different than what you know the programs that you see in the U.S. and other countries across the world for for those medical access. Um, for patients who are, are special in that way. And I, I think, I think we, we've done a good job of that. I think um, a, lot of, a lot of companies are struggling because they're, they're being told, hey, you gotta, you gotta push through a clinical trial and it's the only way to establish safety in a phase one, efficacy in a phase two. You see what MAPS is doing, they've completed their program. But then on the flip side to your point, uh, Gary, I mean, Compass Pathways came out with um, uh, a study. They, they published their study uh, about a month and a half ago, maybe a month ago, you know, talking about the impact of psilocybin and on depression, on, on major depressive disorder, treatment-resistant depression. And, you know, what they basically said is that at the one milligram level, it seemed to have some efficacy. At the 10 milligram level, it did certainly have safety and tolerability built in. But when you got to that 25 milligram, um, which is the standard dose in the industry, um, you started to see some adverse side effects to that. And, you know, I think that's um, that's where those importance are critical because they teach us more instead of just trying to rush through the regulations and the legislation to say, hey, it works. It helped, you know, the 1%, let's just microdose this stuff to death. And while I do support microdosing at a very low, you know, small dosage factor, um, you know, I also do respect that there are people out there who are suffering immensely who could use a macro dose or a hero dose um, with the proper therapeutic modalities built in. Exactly. And on that note, you decide you 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 decided finally, I guess, to go to your your uh, your first yeah. uh, first session, first journey, what the, how they call it. How did that come about? How, why why did you decide? I know why. I, I have a feeling I understand why because I'm one of those people that I, I I really don't believe in in promoting stuff or stuff that I haven't tried or haven't done or it's kind of hard to understand because you're trying to explain it to people. But if you can't do it, then you know it's very difficult to actually you know explain yeah. it. So is that the reason why you decided to do your first journey, or was there something underlying that you said I need to go see something? 
Yeah, I think I think there were a couple of a couple of factors. Uh, number one, general interest. Um, I have clients from the retreats um, space right through to the um, to developing AI platforms um, around psychiatrists for for psychotherapy and psychedelics. So uh, it, it's a wide spectrum, but. With um, Andrew Galloway and Chris Dawson, and it's they're really they remind me a lot of you, Gary, in terms of their passion for what they're trying to accomplish and the reasons they're trying to achieve the results that they want to achieve. And in this case, with Dimensions Health, uh, they have a retreat um, center about 50 acres uh, located in the Algonquin Highlands, which is up in the Muskokas uh, in Ontario, Canada. And what they've done is they've they've established a really good program that is uh, already starting to see benefits for veterans who are coming through. So they've really tailored this for, for veterans um, in Canada and, and, and across the world as well, once that program starts to, 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 to get up and running more efficiently. But again, they did remind me a lot of the, the passion that you have for your work as well um, with what you're trying to establish in Costa Rica. Um, I went on this journey because I really, uh, one, have my own trauma that I, I certainly need to deal with. And that dates back to losing my parents when I was a you know, teenage kid, um, right through to you know, being able to have these discussions with my clients and really understanding how it works. Um, the difference with the Dimensions Health uh, uh, retreat was that it is cannabis-based. And, you know, for those of you who say, oh, oh, hold on, you know, how, how, does, how do psychedelics integrate here well with, 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 uh, with cannabis? Well, let me tell you, I went in pretty skeptical. You know, I'm a, I, I come from a conservative background. I, I, I don't know all the drug lingo, but I understand how, how people receive and communicate information. And the reason I wanted to see what this was all about is I really wanted to get an understanding of how they could make cannabis work um, with the uh, with the program, the integration that they have. But more importantly, um, how they laid out the facility and all the small details that you're not just walking into a clinic, um, getting your ketamine, getting your cannabis and then, you know, sitting in a room for a few minutes and then going home or getting someone to drive you home. This is the full meal deal, no different. And you and I have had this discussion in the past about trying to develop a five-star resort, a kind of a, a four seasons resort. And what Dimensions is doing in, in, in Algonquin um, is, is fantastic. And it's really, really special because they've taken the full integrative experience from the, um, from the psychoanalysts right through to the person who greets you at the door who also has a therapeutic background. And you feel from the second you walk onto that, onto that property that you are loved, you are cared for, and you are respected. And I was there with, I think, 12 different people um, whom I've never met. And we all bonded to a point where we're all talking now about all kinds of different things, about how we feel. We're still expressing how we feel and, and what we want to do in the future, creating new ideas. And there's this whole neurogenesis I felt that took place uh, at this retreat. And, you know, I do think it is going to be an important model. But more importantly, what it did for me is it allowed me to hit my own reset button. Um, the, the formula and the way they, they integrated and, and had us consume the cannabis was also very ceremonial and brought that whole spiritual side combined with the psychotherapy side over four or five days. And it was an unbelievable experience. I can't, I can't stress enough how 
much it did for me. And I, I put put the promotion aside. What it did for me, what it did to some of the people I'm talking to still today, is profound. That's 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 incredible, and, and that's like you said. We we've talked about our facility in, in Costa Rica, and that's the feeling we want from the moment you step on to the the land that you come to in, in Costa Rica. Basically, you know, from from the sleeping experience to the the food experience to everything that that that, that you can come in touch with. It, it's all about you. It has nothing to do with anybody else. It's fundamentally about you. And, and once everybody gets the feeling of that inner peace, that's where the bonding with everybody else's inner peace starts to become 100%. relevant. And that's because they're comfortable now. They can open up. And that's the biggest thing I've dealt with with first responders. And that's one of the biggest reasons I did it, especially when I had with my CBD company, is when I started providing first responders with CBD, it was just for pain. You know, it, it helped with pain, and I, I knew they were going to get the, the lose their 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 employment because I I tested it, made sure there was no TNC. It. But what ended up happening was the profound conversations I had afterwards. They were on it for a while, from the from people who are like you said in the military, Type A personality, people who are always giving for somebody else was the fact that they started feeling they needed help. And it's a completely different feeling that when you from from when you see those posters on the walls and fire stations saying, "Oh, if, if you want to hurt yourself, call this number," or if you have bad feelings, call this number. Nobody's calling those numbers. Uh, you know, there's very few, very few. But the fact that a small little compound can open somebody to actually just freely have that conversation is what really drove me to saying, you know what, the, these plant-based medications, these psychedelic compounds, if we can get them done right and done safely in, in an atmosphere that these people feel comfortable open, we're not only looking at end-of-life treatment, I feel we're looking at yearly preventative treatment so that these mental issues do not build long-term. Well, you're absolutely right. And, you know, I, you kind of just uh, juggled something in my, in my brain here and, and, and made me remember, you know, there was, um, there was a time when, you know, you look at the intergenerational effect of, of how we treat mental health and just healthcare in general. Um, baby boomers were very, very hands off with mental health, as we know. You didn't speak about it in the household. You didn't speak about it in the workplace. You certainly didn't speak about it in your community. Gen X came around and we kind of said, hey, we know we have issues and I am a Gen Xer. We know we have issues, but again, it's a closet thing. You keep it there, you bury it, you don't talk about it. Then Gen Y came along and started saying, you know what? I think, you know, the advent of technology, social media, or not even social media, but just the internet coming around and the proliferation of communications and messaging. Um, they started to talk about it a bit more and you started to see this progression towards um, being a little more open with mental health. And then you had um, the millennial generation come in and they started to say, well, hold on a second here. I'm actually, and people crap on millennials all the time. and we, we tease them. I've teased them a few times myself. And if you're a millennial listening right now, I apologize. But, <laughs> you know, I, I give them full credit. I give them full credit because they started, they started to test governments. They started to ask the questions that are so important. And then you have Gen Z coming through. But these these last two generations are now at the point where they're like, no, it's not acceptable for us to suffer in silence. Fix it 
now. And, you know, during my, my time at Dimensions and in my retreat, you know, I had a lot of time to reflect and, um, and, and really, I think, just internalize some of the stuff that I'd, I'd grown, you know, learned, learned over the, the few days. And, you know, I, as a, as a lobbyist, I came into that retreat with a, with a hard, strong backbone on, hey, you know, we need to be diplomatic. We need to be transparent. We need to work within the parameters of, of government structure we have in front of us and the regulatory structure. And, you know, but I still believe that we need to, we need to treat end-of-life patients um, hands down. We need to get medicine into them right away so they can experience for the quality of their life. But then I started to think, you know, if we if we're having problems getting these medications, um, these medicines into people who are at end of life, imagine what it's like to be an 18 to 23 year old, 25 year old individual who's really, really suffering um, with a mental health or an addictions issue. And to tell me that they're not palliative, um, you know, I, I thought of it differently before I went in that, you know, they're just people who have a mental health issue and there's, there's a procedure in place to help them. But then I thought more about it and talked to the psychotherapist about it, but no, they are, these people are, they're, they're sick and they need help. They need it right now. And we're not helping them and getting this to them as soon as we possibly can, then, you know, we're going to lose them. And, and, and we need to do a better job of at least raising the bar and getting that communication out for them. Couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. So, so what's what's next after you, if you take his journey? What's next for for Michael Kidd? Well, you know, uh, starting a couple of new, um, uh, transitioning a couple of pieces of my business. Um, uh, more uh, looking at um, the. Uh, the, the technology front. So we've got some cool things that are happening, working with some partners here in Halifax, uh, looking to establish a sales force to help um, get uh, more communication out to, to prospective uh, clients. Uh, everybody's chasing the same dog, but um, you know, the dog's only biting one of us back. So, you know, we have to, um, you know, we, my, my company's very focused and engaged on uh, in, in really, bringing people in and connecting so that we can uh, find a way to get products to market in a healthy and responsible way. And, um, you know, that's something that my company is going to be looking for. I'm really excited. I'm going to continue to, to lobby you, uh, not just on behalf of my clients, but I put a lot of pro bono work into different associations and, um, and, you know, my job, I think as for as long as I'm going to be working in this business is to ensure that the people who need access to these uh, medicines and to these drugs um, get them in a safe and efficacious way so that we can all benefit as a society and move forward. And I know that sounds so cliche, but I truly, truly believe that to the core of my heart, my friend. I do. I, I, I just want to see people do well. And, and it doesn't matter race, color, creed, religion, gender. I just want people to work together and really feel the power of this together. I could agree more. And if people wanted to follow you and see your progress and see, uh, you know, what you're up to, how would you do that? What, what, what's your social links? Well, kiddergroup.com. As I said, I'm a, I'm a Gen Xer, so I check my website every once in a while. Uh, I'm on Twitter. Um, and uh, LinkedIn's probably the best way to get me. I'm, I'm on LinkedIn a lot. And, um, you know, and then 
There's always just sending me a quick email at michaelatkittergroup.com. Always happy to chat with anyone. Doesn't have to be business related. I just love talking psychedelics and, and more importantly, helping people get to uh, to the next stages of their careers. And I get a lot of people who reach out to me and, and I have time for every single one of them. So uh, to you, Gary, I wish you and your, your family all the best uh, over the holidays. And again, thank you for everything. Same to you, Michael. I appreciate you taking the time out of your day coming on the show. You're, you're, you know, since the first day I met you, you're, you're a fabulous person. You know, you, you've always done right by me. You've always connected us with who we had to be connected. So I'm, I'm glad to call you friend and, and colleague. And anytime that uh, I'll put all your information in the show notes. So if anybody wants to reach out to you, they can do that. Anytime, Gary. And you know, that's reciprocal. Anything else I can do for you. Sounds wonderful. You have a great holiday. Stay safe with your family. Good Dudes Grow 2.0. Thank you for tuning in. If you're still listening to this, that means you gained something out of this episode. So make sure you share it with a friend, leave a review, and subscribe so you never miss an episode of The Good Dudes Grow 2.0.